0: Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Stay Curious, a podcast where we want to help create diversity in thought without also creating division in community, and where we want to help people remember how to think instead of tell them what to think. I am your host, Matt Fisher. I'm the creative director here at Hill City Church, where we are recording this and every episode of the podcast. And I am joined today, as always, by my co-host, who's sitting in a different uh, chair than normal. So it's we're doing this weird side eye. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh John Wagler wags. How you doing today, bud?
1: I'm feeling great, Matt.
0: Always with the great.
1: Always always with the great. It's <laughs> weird that it's going to be 90 degrees tomorrow. Yeah, it kind it's of October. like
0: yeah, it's October. It's going to be 100 degrees uh or oh, 97 degrees this week and We're watching, it makes me feel like Mad Max is not that far off. We're just going to (laughs) be fighting for water and gasoline soon. Um, And we are super stoked uh, this week to be joined by a very special guest um, for our third week in our sexuality series. Today we are joined via Zoom phone um, by author Karen Keane. Karen, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You're our first remote interview, as you could tell by our technical prowess earlier, <laughs> trying to figure out Zoom. Um, yeah. And so thank you so much for joining us. Um, for those of you who don't know, and we've been kind of talking about it leading up to this, um, Karen uh, is an author and has written a book. Karen, you I should have it in front of me. It's um, titled, uh, is it? You tell me what the title of your book is. <laughs>
2: It's it's entitled Scripture, Ethics, and the Possibility of Same-Sex Relationship, published with Erdman.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I've read it twice, I promise. I just can never say the name right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's Um, a long title. It is, but that's okay.
0: Uh, it's, um, uh, It's a great book. It was actually... Um, sort of the way I found out about it was from our uh, guest from last week, Preston Sprinkle. Um, somebody, I think Justin Vines, who is uh, another author. Sorry, Justin Lee, not Matthew Vines. Uh, Justin Lee, uh, during a conversation with Preston, somebody asked, like, what's a good, like, what's something that's challenged you recently? And he said, uh, Karen's book. So, of course, I went out and read Karen's book and Uh, John's read it too Um, and we're passing it around the staff office as we speak Um, and so yeah we just wanted to get you on Karen to kind of um, give us a little bit of your story but then also ask you a couple of questions so um, before we get started with the questions just kind of tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing um, uh, in the sort of counseling and and authoring space and then also just a little bit about um, yourself and how you got involved in this conversation.
2: Yeah. So um, I'm an educator and spiritual care provider in Durham, North Carolina, originally from California. I grew up in a very conservative Baptist tradition. My first seminary experience was also at a conservative Baptist seminary, Western seminary. And I went on to um, Duke Divinity School. And uh, I mostly do writing, teaching, and again, spiritual care work, meeting one-on-one with people. Uh, mostly pastored. I meet a lot with pastors. That's one of my passions is to support ministry leaders who are, are uh, working hard and are often isolated in their positions. So um, I really enjoy the opportunity to support them and help them to thrive and succeed in what they're doing. And as you mentioned, I just had a book come out, Scripture Ethics and the Possibility of Same-Sex Relationship. That is not the book that I envisioned that I would first write when I was a kid. I've always wanted to publish and write a book. And I imagined writing something else like my, uh, you know, like uh, the Nancy Drew books that I read or something (laughs) like that. I did not imagine growing up to write a book about sex and it, there's a certain discomfort to that, uh, but I, I believe that it's an important um, conversation to have. And um, I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that I'm contributing something helpful to the conversation. And the way that I came to that, uh, to writing that book came out of my own journey and my own experience. So as I mentioned, I grew up in a conservative context Everything that I had heard about gay people was uh, coming from very conservative newsletters and speakers who who believed, uh, they weren't being malicious, these leaders weren't being malicious, but they just genuinely believed that gay people were choosing to just act rebelliously. That, you know, why would someone do this? They must, they, they just, they've fallen away from God or they're atheist and they're acting out and they just need to repent and come back. God and so I thought that too that's what I was taught so I just assumed that that was accurate and I didn't really know any gay people growing up Um, I was in high school in the 1990s when people were not really coming out at that time and so all I had to rely on uh, was what I had been taught by the church And it was a very disturbing picture, you know, gay people are pedophiles and drug addicts and, and mentally ill and all of that. And so it was really rather traumatic for me when I realized that I was attracted to the same sex. So in my late teens, I started to come out of denial and started coming to this awareness and, uh, Uh, When I really started to grapple with it, I was in college and I was at a Baptist college at the time. I had fallen in love with my best friend and it turned my world upside down. I did not understand what was happening. I did not know how this could possibly happen to a good Christian girl. You know, I was a very clean cut Baptist kid. Uh, who was going to Bible college because I wanted to serve in ministry. I have loved God from the time that I was a child. I've loved scripture since I was a child. And so um, uh, I actually um, ended up in the ex-gay movement originally. My, I went to the college counselor to try to get help. And I thought, well, maybe this is just some temporary temptation, some kind of a phase that I'm going through, and I just need to get some help and I'll get over this and everything will be fine. And so the counselor at the college referred me to an ex gay ministry, and I was part of that for several years trying to change my sexual orientation. You know, I was taught that. The reason I had these feelings was because it must have been related to some childhood wounds, some parent-child disruption. Um, and if I just healed those wounds and if I just engaged in spiritual disciplines and practices, that I would be able to overcome this. And um, and I, time proved that that was not the case. Uh, that my sexual orientation was not changing despite my best intentions and despite my efforts and working in the program, uh, that led to a lot of depression. Um, but eventually I uh, joined the celibate gay movement mm-hmm. and, and I came to terms with the fact, okay, this is just the way it is. This must be the result of the fall. Maybe this is some kind of a birth defect mm-hmm. and I just, I, I'm just fallen and I just have to wait till the resurrection to experience, uh, you know, healing, and it's not gonna happen in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so I was part of the celibate gay movement for several years, and there's a lot of good friends that I have that are still in that movement that I love, um, people like Wesley Hill. And uh, but and, I, and I, I would say I achieved a certain amount of peace and uh, in, in, in living congruently with my conviction and, um, but ultimately, I, I came to the, a place where I did not believe that God was asking um, me to commit to lifelong celibacy. And that was not because it became too hard to be celibate. It was because I had gone on to graduate school and biblical studies. Um, I got my THM at Duke, and then I went on to some doctoral work at Marquette. Um, uh, And I started to realize that uh, the way I had been taught to read scripture was good, but incomplete. And that as I got into reading scripture... uh, there was a lot more there than I realized. Basically I became affirming because I got to know the Bible even better. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and so I would say that, that it was through the Bible, not in spite of the Bible, but through the Bible that I came to an affirming place. Um, so that's a little bit of my story.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that's really good. And when you mentioned seminary and, when you said, you know, obviously through the Bible or get, getting to know the Bible better, you came to an affirming place. Uh, why do you think that happened? You know, because obviously for some folks in the academic space, you know, I don't know what the percentages are. I, you know, I'm sure someone, I guess, probably does. <laughs> but but in in terms of it's not, hey, everyone who goes to seminary thinks the same way about sexuality you know or or maybe even any topic obviously but but like there's you know when you when you get into the academic space there's just a lot of discussion a lot around that and so what for you um because obviously it again whatever the split is it is split on this topic theologically and so what for you led you there as you kind of engage scripture
2: Yeah, I would say that I began to look at the question from a different angle. So I think over the years, uh, what scholars have done or lay people have done is really um, rehash the six to eight verses prohibition passages over and over and over and over and over. And the debate is is at at a stalemate around those prohibition passages. So a traditionalist will say, well, these prohibitions include um, uh, you know, that this same-sex relations are wrong on the basis of a creation ordinance, anatomical ca- complementarity? And, and progressive will say, well, no, if we look at the historical context, we know that what was happening was exploitative practices, pederasty, sex with slaves, um, that kind of thing. And so what is being prohibited is what they were were seeing at that time, time period. And so there's the debate that goes back and forth, back and forth over the prohibition passages from both sides. And I have to say that neither side can really prove their point, because as Preston Sprinkle acknowledges, the biblical authors don't specify specifically what type of same-sex relations are happening. Um, Now, he would say, well, the affirming side is filling in all the blanks. But he's not owning necessarily the fact that he's filling in the blanks also with what he thinks that the biblical authors are understanding about those um, uh, relations that are happening. Obviously, almost all the passages, if not all of them, refer to males. Uh, there's only one possible place that refers to females, that's in Romans, but it doesn't say who uh, the women are having relations with. And of course, Augustine interpreted it as women having anal sex with men, not as uh, female, same-sex relations. Um, But all that to say, the, the debate has centered around the prohibition passages and the question that was not being asked that I kind of started to get curious about was how did the biblical authors engage with mandates in the first place? So let's just assume that there's this prohibition there. Um, what are, how did the biblical authors engage with ethics as it relates to law or mandate? And as I as I began to look in the scriptures on that. I realized that the biblical authors do not see mandates as completely unchangeable or that they cannot be broken. At, uh, there may be occasions when things are, um, refined or in the case of, of uh, Jesus talking about King David breaking the law to eat the uh, uh, the sacred bread, um, there's occasion when following the law actually violates um, God's greater intent. So it was acceptable for David to break the law and eat the bread. Because he and his men were hungry and they needed food to to eat and to to survive, um, and so there was a, a humanitarian um, concern there, uh, and and so and so Jesus said that the law is is meant to to benefit humankind. The law is not for the arbitrary uh, appeasement of some uh, abstract. I don't know, sensibility that God has. It's, it's to benefit humankind. Um, and, uh, and so that's what ultimately uh, shifted my viewpoint is that I asked a different type of question. I asked, how did the biblical author demonstrate to us how to handle mandates in scripture in the first place? And that was a question I didn't see people asking.
0: Um, that's, that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, so as you sort of struggled with this or, 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 yeah, struggled with it and and came to where you were at, one of the things that I heard you say, um, that has really stuck with me through all the reading and even like you and Preston's blog exchange is this idea of like what Paul did or didn't know. And you kind of referenced that. And, And I don't know if you listened to the podcast or not, uh, from last week, but Preston did actually say, uh, that he felt that the affirming side was filling in a lot of the margins. What, um, when you're wrestling with scripture, are there any other places? And, And I'm sorry, it also sounds like you were saying like, we're both filling margins. Like you are, you're acknowledging that like both sort of sides of this debate are filling in space. Where there yeah, is not certainty, I
2: would argue that Preston is filling in the blank just as much as the affirming side.
0: Which is interesting because I feel like the other, not necessarily Preston, but I've heard other arguments on both sides say, "Oh, I'm filling in blanks," but they're filling in more blanks. Whereas okay. what I hear you saying is like, "We are filling in the same number of blanks." But that was a big thing that I came away with, uh, especially with your exchange with Preston, was like, "Man, we are making a lot of assumptions." About what Paul knows or doesn't know about homosexuality in in the century in which he's writing, are there mm. other assumptions um, for both sides or either side that you feel like are glaring when you started to get into to really studying what the Bible says about this?
2: Well, I would say the main assumptions on each side are are related to what I said a moment ago, and that is, you know, the uh, traditionalist side assumes that. The biblical authors have the same understanding of marriage and sex difference as 21st century American evangelicals. Uh, And so I would say that traditionalists can can uh, be tempted to have anachronistic reading. They're reading back into the text their own modern American evangelical social location. Uh, And, you know, for example, Genesis. Take Genesis, for example. Genesis written by, you know, ancient Israelites who uh, approved of of polygamy. And so, you know, this whole idea of Genesis saying one man, one woman, um, that's not necessarily how the original writer would have understood Genesis, because polygamy was something that was practiced. And it seems like from early rabbinic writing that Polygamy was something that would practice within Judaism into the first century and beyond. It became a source of debate around the second century, uh, uh, you know, maybe even a little bit before that, under Greek influence, because the Greeks are the ones that introduced marital monogamy to the ancient Near East. And that's when we begin to see uh, Jewish writing outside the Bible begin to actively re uh, Uh, argue against it. Um, But the writer of Genesis was was still at a place where polygamy was something that was an accepted practice. And it's really interesting to look at African Christians. Um, You'll find some African Christians who are not nearly as disturbed by the idea of polygamy um, as Americans or people in the West, and will rightly say that the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn uh, polygamy. And so you can see if you look at Christians in the West versus Christians in, in Africa, how much social location influences the way that we read the Bible and and the things that we extrapolate from it. So all that to say, I would say that uh, on the traditional side, the assumption is that the biblical authors have a 21st century American evangelical understanding of marriage, which is not not the case. Um, <clears throat> And I would say, on the progressive side, the assumption that is made is that because the historical context, um, you know, there's ample evidence that shows that same-sex relations were predominantly exploitative, uh, that that's the only possibility for what the biblical authors meant when they prohibited uh, at least male same-sex relations. Uh, you know, you could you could argue that the biblical authors we're thinking of more than exploitative practices. They're also thinking about, um, complementarity of the texts.
1: Do you think that, you know, in, in the same way, I, I mean, as you're talking about interpretation of scripture, we, you know, I've said this as I preach and, um, we've talked about this on the podcast too. We all bring our life experiences into interpretation. We, you know, the denomination you were raised in the part of the country you were raised in and everything else. And one of the things that I'm, I just would like to hear your perspective on around this is, you know, when everything happened with the Methodists, um, you know, and their vote that they had and how it was overwhelmingly um, people outside of Western culture, mm-hmm. you know, swayed the vote uh, on that and whether or not they wanted to be affirming as a denomination or not. And, and, Part of what makes me pause sometimes in this conversation is, is what part of this are maybe we bringing in the Western colonization of things again, like we can so easily do with some things. So what's your perspective on that? Because it's so different, obviously in different parts of the world.
2: Right, right. So, um, you know, Americans don't understand how African Christian can tolerate polygamy and African Christian can't understand how, western christians can tolerate same-sex relations <laughs> right yeah and, and a lot of that has to do with the cultural context so in the west what has happened is uh, certain factors that made same-sex relationships untenable have uh changed for for example um contraception has made procreative elective in uh marriage um Uh, egalitarian relationships between men and women has made uh, hierarchical structures in marriage uh, less compelling. So if marriage does not require procreation and if marriage does not require hierarchy, uh, the argument against same-sex relations becomes uh, less, less compelling. Also in the West, uh, people have been able to come out of the closet. And show misconceptions about gay people as being criminal or pervert, uh, uh, those misconceptions and stereotypes are no longer viable, which is why young people are overwhelmingly more accepting than older people because they have gay friends, they know gay people, and they, they, the stereotypes just aren't compelling anymore like they used to. And in a um, non-Western context, many of those stereotypes are still... Uh, believable um, uh, because people are in the closet people can lose their lives uh, if they come out of the closet and so um, you'll find pastors in some of these contexts preaching from the pulpit really horrible caricatures about uh, LGBT people that are false um, but are misconceptions that are getting passed on so those misconceptions are still there you also find that that hierarchical relationships are more common still Um, And procreation remains a really prominent part of of what marriage is. So, uh, you know, African culture is very similar to ancient Israelite culture in that uh, procreation is understood as a communal um, good. So if you don't get married and have children, that's considered to be a really selfish thing because having children is, is important for the survival of the community, particularly if you're living in an agricultural setting and you need children to help with farming or you don't have um, you know, retirement homes and things like that, you need your children to care for you when you're elderly. And there's also this idea in both African culture and Israelite culture where um, the idea of your progeny um, is how your name lives on. There's a certain immortality that is achieved by your name getting passed on in your descendants. And so um, and so because of those cultural factors, it, it changes the way people understand same-sex relations. So I think in cultures where, um, uh, where there's more egalitarianism, and where uh, procreation is not required, and where stereotypes are no longer uh, sustainable, that the argument against same-sex relations becomes more difficult.
1: Yeah. When you mentioned earlier about um, some of the things that, you know, we understand now in 21st century, you know, culture and about orientation and things like that, and you referenced the creation account and i know that you and preston come from different starting points you know in terms of how to view you come from the kind of covenant view and then preston obviously comes from sex differential but when you were um referencing what paul might know and bringing in a creation there is like the element for me personally in this kind of theological side is like, yes, we see the creation part and I understand the dynamics there. And yes, even with Paul, I see, you know, he starts at creation in Romans one and kind of works through Romans one, two and three. It's kind of a similar feel to like the start of creation through all of us being separated by sin and, and everything. And, but then there's Jesus in Matthew 19 who goes back to creation with man and woman. And so, um, When you see a passage like that, how do you work through, for some folks it might be scary to say, well, Jesus maybe didn't understand sexuality like we do now, or, you know, how would you respond to a passage like Matthew 19 um, and and run this conversation?
2: Right. Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, Matthew 19 is a good example of, of, of anachronistic reading that we tend to do. So, By anachronistic, I mean we're reading our modern-day assumption back into the text rather than looking for the biblical author's intended meaning within their context. And so because the same-sex marriage debate is so much on our mind that when we see Jesus refer to male, female in Genesis, we say, aha, he's making an argument about uh, sexual complementarity. Um, But that is really quite unlikely uh, because Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the Pharisees didn't have any question about sexual complementarity. I mean, if Jesus started making an argument to them about it needs to be male and female, they would have been like, what are you talking about? Duh, you know, Uh, male, female was a given for the Pharisees. That wasn't the point of why, why Jesus would bring up Genesis um so in that particular uh discussion with the pharisees the pharisees are referring to moses and mosaic law and saying look moses allows for divorce and so jesus says well okay but there's something that had greater precedent than moses and something that precedes moses and that is creation so the reason that jesus refers back to genesis is, look, God made humankind at the beginning to to be in covenant, permanent covenant union. And so regardless of what Moses says, we have this precedent from creation that marriage is to be permanent. That's what what the conversation is about. Um, And so this idea that Jesus is making an argument for sex difference in marriage doesn't make any sense to the context of what in what she was speaking and to the people that he was speaking to.
1: Okay. All right.
0: Um, <clears throat> so one of the things that we've heard, because in your book, you talk about sort of an approach to hermeneutics and really learning, you know, you're trying to, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I heard from your book was you're trying to learn um, from Jesus how to apply hermeneutic. Is that is that right kind of like referencing when he says sabbath is not made for the um sorry our lights just went out <laughs> <laughs> for some reason um when jesus says uh that um you know the sabbath is not made for or man is not made for the sabbath sabbath is made um for man um so as you, you know you're you're really trying to figure out hermeneutics and how would jesus have taught hermeneutics um but one of the things that i've heard from the um traditionalist side lately especially um is this idea that like well the hermeneutic that of that um, allows for same-sex marriage would lead logically to allowing for polyamory um which is a thing i don't know how it is where you're at but in richmond um there's a, a pretty openly like polyamory friendly episcopal church there's like a growing polyamory um christian polyamory movement what is your response to, to, to that supposition or that accusation that like, well, this hermeneutic seems is good, but it'll lead to these other, you know, like polyamory, for, for instance?
2: I don't know how it would lead to that. I mean, I would have to hear what the actual argument is. I think most of the time when people use that argument, they're not actually coming to it with a well-developed hermeneutic and showing how these hermeneutics are the same. They're just saying oh my gosh same-sex relations are really bad and that's going to lead to more bad things and the whole slippery slope and so i don't think that that argument tends to be a very critical like a very well thought out argument and i think slippery slope arguments are problematic and that they seem more like a care uh, excuse me a scare tactic rather than a well thought out um uh Hermeneutic, although I'm definitely open to hearing if somebody is actually demonstrating how the hermeneutic I'm showing is the same as for for polyamory. But obviously the first thing there would be, you know, the whole basis uh, that I say for marriage and the the context for sex is covenant. That's the basis for marriage. And so polyamory is outside of covenant. Um, If you add covenant to polyamory, that is polygamy mm-hmm. uh and and then if we're going to talk about polygamy then that's a different uh a different question than polyamory
0: okay
1: yeah i think i've seen the one argument well it was a horrendous argument about poly- <laughs> about polyamory honestly <laughs> but um i would agree that the the aspect of adding in covenant leads you to polygamy obviously because polyamory is
0: married to one hmm, dating others yeah right, or yeah
1: or they just consider themselves married right. in the site. You know, like they're, this person was making the argument that we have made a covenant to each other. We consider ourselves married. Mm. And um, and so they were basing it off of covenant language that way. And so that was like one, and, and the way that they were talking about it was in the same way that the line that this person actually used was in the same way someone would say same sex is through covenant we have i think it was the four of them i think Mm -hmm. um the four of us have made a covenant to each other Mm -hmm. um in that same way in that we're building off and then they did bring in the old testament look at polygamy you know Mm -hmm. um and how to your point karen it's hard to argue against it biblically (laughs) you know and and then quite frankly even in and it's a question um you know for me personally i i Matt and I defer a little bit on this theologically, not practically and how we love, but like there's on the theological side, I do have, even though I lean man and woman in marriage, um, in terms of of what the Bible points to, I have so many questions and it's, and it's unsettling a little bit in even around this. When I was reading this article about the polyamory and polygamy, this person then referenced, uh, I think it's second Samuel 12, if I'm not mistaken, when, uh, it talks about how God was going to bless David with more wives, you know, mm-hmm. as if that was a God ordained thing, mm-hmm. which defeats, <laughs> de- de- it, like that's that's in like it's an argument against actually the idea that one man one woman mm-hmm. in traditional marriage, right? Like that's to the, say that God said that, you know, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. and so they use that as a part of their argument that's saying like so it was like this blending of all of these things in terms of making this discussion way muddier, Mm -hmm. you know, than, uh, than sometimes. So my point was just saying that like they use covenant language in the same way. Um, but then they threw a wrench in the man and woman argument too of of monogamy. So,
2: right. Right. Well, let's be clear that that, polygamy
1: right, yes. right. Let's, yes let's be
2: clear and calling that what it is it's polygamy not polygamy. Correct. yeah um and so if we're talking about polygamy um then you know then we would need to look at that from a different context and i will say that that doesn't fit the slippery slope argument oh if we we affirm same-sex marriage it's going to slippery slope into polygamy uh you know polygamy has existed you know for hundreds of years, and of course, some African Christians still don't see that as being an issue, precisely because the Bible doesn't really explicitly condemn it, mm-hmm. and it fits with their cultural context. And the, the biblical authors who are writing Genesis, again, approved of, of polygamy. So that's not a slippery, that, that's no longer a slippery slope argument, because same-sex marriage is something that is coming apart and separate from polygamy, which is pre-existing, Um, What we do see in the Bible in relation to this conversation, and I'm not the person to get into a a debate about polygamy, but I will say that, um, uh, you know, what we see is an evolution in sexual ethics in scripture, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is very helpful because sometimes in this conversation or just in in, uh, biblical interpretation in general, people tend to engage in flat reading of the text and just compress all the text together as if they were all written at the same time period. And we do see an evolution. So women's sexuality is consistent throughout. Women's sexuality is very closely guarded as it has been across cultures, across history, because men wanna know who their offspring are. Um, And um, in a time period where there's not modern contraception, sex leads to procreation. Uh, and so, women's sexuality has always been had uh, been closely guarded for that region. And women who were not virgins, you know, they've got second-class status as as prostitutes or whatever. Mm. Um, but men's sexuality in Scripture does evolve, and so we see in ancient Israel that men are allowed to have more than one sexual partner it was not one man one woman a man could lawfully have sex with more than one wife uh could lawfully have sex with a slave um and that begins to change in the greco roman period as i mentioned before the greeks a lot of people don't realize this but the greeks are the ones that introduced marital monogamy to the ancient near east and that's not that there was no marital monogamy at all before that, but that polygamy was something that was acceptable or bigamy. Uh, and in ancient Israelite context, a man might take a second wife because his first wife was infertile, or uh, you know, it, 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 a lot of it tended to revolve around procreation and having offspring. Um, so with marital monogamy, you also begin to see in Jewish writings uh, more a push for sexual monogamy as well. And and um, I think the sexual monogamy for Jews uh, also came because of a change in political status. So the Jewish people no longer had their own nation, could no longer control their own culture. They were now under occupation by other nations. And so for a man to not be sexually monogamous... Um, meant that he was having he would be having sex with a foreign woman, mm. which would jeopardize, you know, a man leaving his family and his faith and his heritage. Uh, so if you can imagine Jews living in the Greco-Roman period where extramarital sex for men is among non-Jewish women, that's a danger. You don't want your men to leave the 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 tribe. You want to keep them in. And so sexual and marital monogamy becomes very important in order to do that. So that's how it evolved biblically from polygamy to monogamy for men. Hmm. Um and so then how did that then inform how we think about ethics uh for marriage. Right. Looking 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 at that evolution.
1: Yeah. That's good.
0: Um <clears throat> so uh I wanted to ask you you seem, you know, just from your writing and sort of your viewpoint, just talking to you a little bit and, and reading and listening to your interviews, um, you and one of the things Preston praised you for was having this very even-handed, like your book is very even-handed. You do a good job of representing the traditional side. You do a good job of representing the affirming side and a good job of representing the issues with both. For you, considering yourself affirming, what are... Um, What's something, without like throwing anyone under the bus, obviously, what what are, um, what's something that you hear on the affirming side that just constantly kind of gives you, makes you eye roll or say ugh a little bit? Um,
2: yeah, I, I think that um, I don't really like the slogan, love is love, hmm. or uh, I mean, it's like, well, we need to talk about what that means like Mm. what is what do we mean by love or um you know uh, uh i think the cultural context is an important argument but it's not the only one it doesn't resolve all the questions and so i think that affirming folk have to reckon with sex difference and what is the significance of sex difference and and so um i would say the affirming side that would be where I, I kind of get frustrated is, is not really engaging more with some of the valid points that the traditionalist side is making mm. on that. And of course, in my book, the way that I deal with that is it's not an either or proposition. I think the deconstruction of sex and gender is a problem. I think that male and female is beautiful and that there's something beautiful about male and female coming together and creating new life and procreation. So I absolutely affirm that and in many ways agree with traditionalists that that is a really good, wonderful blessing and thing. Um, My argument is not that that's not true, but that there's an and. We have this and also we have people who are... uh, atypical in their sexual development and so where is there room for people with atypical sexual development to participate as much as they possibly can in uh the blessing of of covenant even if it's not even if they're not able to participate to the full extent of of a heterosexual union
1: Mm, that's good i think one of the other and I don't know if you feel this too, Karen. But one of the other things that Matt and I have talked about in this discussion on sexuality is there's just a general lack of concentration on sexual integrity and ethic. Like that, right. it's rare that that I don't care what side you're on in the on the conversation or whether you're straight, LGBTQ, whatever. The the, the amount of times I hear really a focus on sexual integrity and ethic in general. Is just so rare. <laughs> it, it just it, it 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 seems like it always concentrates on sides, mm-hmm. and it's just rare about integrity and ethic, which is also part. Of, I think right. you didn't even ask me what I was frustrated, but I just put that out <laughs> Thanks there. Thanks for sharing, John. <laughs> but the, but yeah. So that's from my perspective, anyway.
2: That there seems to be a lack of discussion about sexual integrity from either side. Yeah,
1: or yes. I mean, in our it's more anecdotally, like when we discuss this with you know folks in our church or just in general it's so focused on what side are you on and Mm. and for me so often I'm like can we at least start with just an appreciation of sexual ethic and integrity first Mm. and build from there Um, Mm. because even the the conversation on same-sex relationships aside I mean just in heterosexual couples how flippantly they we think about sex and lust and sex before marriage or whatever it is just, we don't even wrestle with that. Well, mm. let alone conversation around same sex relationships, you know, so.
2: Right. Right. Which is very common. It, it, that, um, it kind of reminds me of one of the, uh, the, the, the something that came up, I did listen to the last podcast. It's something that came up is, is, um, you don't marry for sex or something like that, and yeah, I actually yeah. would have a I would I would have a slightly different perspective on that. I don't think we should marry if we're objectifying somebody, um, but I don't think that a desire to marry for sex is wrong, precisely because I see our sexuality as being defined by. It is a familial drive. It is the drive to bond. It is the drive that compels us to leave and to cleave. And Martin Luther encouraged marriage um, uh, and said that essentially everybody needs to get married um, because he saw it as a God-given, in his view, procreative drive, that it tells us, it's guiding us toward this good. Of, of marriage. And so having those desires is not something shameful, it's not something that is selfish, it is something God-given, and it is meant to teach us and guide us toward the proper context and to channel it toward its proper context, which is marriage. And that is the, and that is the place that we steward sexuality. Um, sex and that familial drive are extremely powerful, and I think that we really do a great disservice when we try to minimize the power of that familial drive. And when we try to diminish the, the power of, um, of that sexual longing and, and drive, what happens is when we minimize it, uh, we, we don't take it seriously. And then it comes out sideways, which was Martin Luther's point too, which he said, you know, look, I'm looking around me in the monastery and monks are having a hard time with this and it's coming out sideways. And so we need to come back to the proper place of stewarding this powerful thing that God has, has given us. And I, and I don't think there's anything selfish or shameful in in, it acknowledging um, that.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think, yeah, the desire for sex is nothing, absolutely nothing shameful for that.
0: Yeah. And I wonder how much of that fear. So when I hear people so Karen, you're familiar with like the the side A side B terminology, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, and and for maybe for those who I don't know if we've actually defined this, we and always side assume y and people, side X. Yeah. yeah, we always assume people that are listening know. So side A and side B is like uh, my understanding of it is sort of we've moved past this idea of like fixing gay, right? Like so it's okay to to like acknowledge your your same sex attraction or whatever, but side A is. Um, essentially, like, you can still get married. Side B is no, like, God is calling you to celibacy. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the, and Karen, you know, you're more involved in this conversation than we are, honestly. Um, A lot of the fear that I hear from side A people is exactly what you're talking about that Martin Luther observed with the monks, which is, yes, celibacy is a gift, but if it's forced, it becomes a mismanagement of this powerful driving force. Does that feel right does that like track with that sort of fear? Not <clears throat> so as somebody who was celibate uh, part of the celibate movement, um, and now is is, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, side A, Um, do you see that it's not so much like, oh, celibacy is wrong but more, or or, cel- or whatever, but more like we can't for forced celibacy result in um some of the sexual damage that we've seen in um denominations or religions that require celibacy. Does that make any sense?
2: Yeah, I, I yeah. there's no evidence that all people can maintain lifelong celibacy. And again, it's not just about sexual release, although that's significant. It's everything that comes with uh, sexual union, and particularly in marriage, all the support emotionally, spiritually that comes from that. But Christian tradition from the time of Paul all the way through the church fathers before even Martin Luther have, have admitted that uh, celibacy is not feasible for everyone. So a lot of the church mothers and fathers thought that um, celibacy was superior and that even married people should stop having sex and married people should even consider living apart in um, convents or monasteries uh, because celibacy was superior. But they still said, okay, but marriage is an accommodation because not everyone can pull it off. So uh, even they thought that, that not everyone could be celibate. And you see it even in uh, modern um, evangelical, conservative evangelical folk like Al Mohler, um, who will argue for early marriage precisely because of the realization that prolonged chastity is not realistic. Um, for a good number of people, and um, and trying to force that ends up causing a lot of problems because uh, people don't are not allowed to channel their this drive in the context of covenant. Uh, and when we're not allowed to channel that in the context of covenant, then it, it creates a lot of dysfunction.
0: Cool. Well, John, do you have, I want to be respectful of Karen's time. I feel like uh, if we keep you for too long, it'll just become a seminar and we'll need to, you'll hey, need yeah. to invoice us. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I, do we-
2: have, I, I do want to add one really key point to this whole conversation, because I know it's important for, for Preston and yeah, go ahead. For other traditional is the whole idea of the significance of sex difference. And I want to say something um, just to, just to, put a thought in people's mind, go back at church tradition and look at how the church fathers and the medieval theologians looked at sex difference. And you will find that it is very different than how conservative evangelicals are describing sex difference now, including some people who thought that sex difference was the result of the fall and that the perfected state was androgynous. Um, And uh, so this idea of sex difference as being the end all to everything and just sort of hyper spiritualization of sex difference is really something that is more modern and comes out of some of the thinking of Karl Barth and is not something that we see in the rest of Christian tradition and how they understood sex difference. I just throw that out there to say that Christian theologians have thought differently about sex difference. And so the way that, um, you know, someone like Preston Sprinkle may be proposing that sex difference has significance is not the only way that we can think about sex difference.
0: Thank you. Yeah. I started reading about Barth and now I feel like I need to go back and read more. Um, cool. Well, John, do you have anything else before we wrap? up? I just want
1: to say thank you, Karen, for taking some time to be with us. Uh, you know, we have, uh, as much as we were you know, we point people to, you know, listening to Preston's stuff and his podcast, he's got some real interesting stuff on there and who he interviews and everything in the same way. We've told folks, Hey, it's great to get different perspectives and have recommended, you know, uh, your book to everyone as well. And so just appreciate you taking the time. And, um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book and gave me a lot, uh, uh, to think about and and I was telling folks, our staff earlier today that I I have so many questions both from your perspective and from Preston's. (laughs) So (laughs) After
0: Preston left, people kept asking John, so do you feel clarity? And he's like, I feel so much less clarity.
1: (laughs) I just, you know, I just have as much as I, you know, if, 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 if I had to, I'm just in like this interesting space theologically where I've got questions for both sides that I'm not so sure has been theologically satisfied for me. <laughs> but um but the one thing that I refuse to, to you know veer off of is I want to really love people well. You know, even mm. in the midst of of figuring some of this stuff out and everything and and that's what's most important to us here and so anyway um, I don't want to get too much into my theological musings, but like there, I just appreciate your time with us um, really means a lot to us that you take time out of your day to do this. So thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Thank you for having me. And I just want to say that, that even though Preston and I are on different sides of the fence here that I greatly respect his um, the way that he engages the conversation with, with kindness and his own willingness to dialogue with me. And I think it is a complicated conversation and that it's okay to feel uncertain and you know paul says that we see through a glass darkly and i think you're exactly right that um that we we try to love people the best that we can and we try to point people toward christ and to seek christ and to listen to the holy spirit and trust that we uh, god god who is gracious holds all of us um
1: amen awesome
0: Amen. That's a word. Thank you, Karen. Um, so everyone, thanks for joining us. Um, and we will be back uh next week, I think next week or the week after, um, continuing our conversation around the intersection uh intersection between faith and sexuality. Karen, thanks again for, for being here with us. Um and you guys go check out Karen's book. Um, it is ethics.
1: Scripture, Scripture, ethics, ethics and the, and the
0: possibility, possibility of same-sex relationship. The fact that I'm the one who shills your book and cannot remember <laughs> the name is a great irony because literally <laughs> I think I've bought three copies and handed them out and I still can't get the name right. That's all right. Oh, man. Um, so thanks so much, Karen. Thanks, for every, everybody, for joining us. If you want to join the conversation, you have questions, comments, concerns, um, email us, Stay curious at hillcityrva.com again that's stay curious at hillcityrva.com take a second to rate and review us and we will see you next time